Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be here and be a part of your worship service this morning. Um, again, my name is Paul, I'm pastor over at Northview in Abbotsford. I uh, a little about my background. Um, grew up in the church uh, and haven't always been a career pastor. Worked for Telus for a number of years uh, and Fairmont Hotels. I did IT stuff and telecom stuff before the Lord really put it on my heart to become a pastor. And I went to seminary and made that leap. Um, and I'm married, my wife Carla, and uh, have four kids, um, and age 17 down to 10. So yes, I know I don't look old enough to have four kids. You don't have to... I'm kidding. <laughs> but thank you uh, for welcoming me here today. It's been great so far to be a part of your earlier service and now to be with you uh, for the eleven. So let me open up in prayer, and we will get into God's word. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, and for the worship we've had so far, and the, the beauty of these lyrics of these great songs from our heritage uh, in Christ, and just to know that the, the people that have come before us and have written such beautiful lyrics to worship you, and to be able to sing those together is awesome. So, Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that you use me as your instrument just to convey your message. So, Holy Spirit, uh, bless our time here. Work on our hearts and minds. Transform us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. Continue to sanctify us. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Lord, have mercy on me, was the kneeling drunkard's plea. And as he knelt there on the ground, I know that God in heaven looked down. I went down by an old country church. I saw the drunkard stagger and lurch. And as he reached his mother's grave, I saw that drunkard kneel and pray. Lord, have mercy on me, was the kneeling drunkard's plea. And as he knelt there on the ground, I know that God in heaven looked down. Bring my darling boy to me, was his mother's dying plea. And as he staggered through the gate, alas, he came just one day too late. Three years have passed since she went away. Her son is sleeping beside her today. And I know that in heaven, his mother he will see. For God has heard that drunkard's plea. These are the words from an old southern gospel song called Kneeling Drunkard's Plea which has been covered by a few artists, the best one being Johnny Cash with Tom Petty singing harmonization. Both those gentlemen are gone now too. But here what the author of this song is saying, he's saying, he's painting this picture of this lady who's dying. She's on her deathbed and her last wish, just, just get my son, bring him, find him, bring him to me so that I can say goodbye to him, so that I can talk to him one last time before the Lord calls me home. And so you can imagine people going and searching. Where is he? What, where does he live? What town's he in? And so they try to find him and find him, and they finally find him, and he comes, but his drink has kept him away too long. And he missed her just by a day. And he's grieved, so he falls on his knees and says, Lord, have mercy on me. And the author tells us, oh, because he said, Lord, have mercy on me. God looked down and saw him, and therefore now he's in heaven. 
So is that all that God requires of us? Is all that God requires of us is us to fall on our knees and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Are those his requirements for dwelling with him in his holy presence? Because if it is, then I don't know what to do with a number of the texts I find in the Bible, including the one we're going to look at today, which is Psalm 15. Psalm 15 asks the question at the beginning, who is worthy to be with God? Who is worthy to dwell in his tent? Who's worthy to sojourn on the Lord's holy hill? And as we go through the rest of the psalm, we see the answer given. And the answer is not us. So we're going to look at this psalm today. Psalm 15, we're going to see it in three parts. First, the question. Second, the answer. Third, the promise. So here is Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord... Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The word of the Lord. So the first thing we see here is a question from verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So David's writing this, and these are parallel statements that convey the same thing. They're they're asking the question, who can dwell in God's presence? Who can even spend any length of time with God in his presence, his holiness being there with you? Who can do that? Who is worthy? The language of the Bible can sometimes be strange to us. It was written... At least, right, the New Testament, 2,000 years ago. This part, probably more like 3,000 years ago, during David's reign over Israel. And we come across things like sojourn and God's tent. Like, what does this mean? Does God go glamping in Golden Ears Park? What does this look like? What does sojourn mean? So let's look at a couple of these things. What does sojourn mean? Sojourn, obviously, isn't a word we use a lot. But it essentially means visit, with the emphasis on the visitor not belonging there. So you can think about going on a vacation down to the south. You go down to Texas, maybe you go down to Dallas, you want to see a Cowboys game or something like this, and you're walking there and talking, and everybody's got these big belt buckles and guns on their hips, and they're talking in their southern twang, and you are... You're talking with people and saying A and sorry a lot, and they're going, you're not from here, are you? But yet they welcome you, and they're happy for you to visit and eat at their restaurants and spend money there, right? So you're sojourning there, but you don't really belong. Or you might think of an old movie from the 80s, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anybody my age and older, I'm sure, has seen it. 
But you think of the picture in that movie where Indiana Jones and his dad are trapped. They're side by, or they're back to back, tied together in a chair in chairs. And there's this Nazi who's talking with them. He's like, "Where's the map to the Grail? Give me the map." And his dad says to Indy, "He's like, give it to him. You have the map. Give it to him." He's like, "I don't have it." What do you mean you don't have it? What have you done with it? Well, I gave it to Marcus. Oh, goodness. How could you have given it to Marcus? And then the Nazi's like, oh, that old fool. I'll find that guy. No problem. But Indy's reply, no, 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 he won't. He's got a two-day head start on you, which is more than he needs. Marcus has friends in every town and village from here to the Sudan. He speaks a dozen languages and knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear, and you'll never see him again. And immediately the scene shifts to him in a Turkish bazaar wearing a, a white suit and a white hat among all these natives and locals wearing their turbans in different colorful garb. And he's like, does anybody speak English? <laughs> and quickly he's thrown into the back of a Nazi truck. He's sojourning there. He doesn't really belong, but yet he's welcome there. And this idea of God's tent, what does this mean? Well, this isn't something you buy, a little five-pound nylon tent that you, put in, that you put into your backpack as you go hiking. This is more of a big, it's a tabernacle of God. I think there's a picture, yes. And this was something that the Lord himself gave them very specific requirements of how this was to look. It was to have gold overlay on certain things and very specific about the fabrics used and, and the, how the sacrifices were to take place outside the tent and the animal skins that would cover the tent. And if it was our day and age, PETA would be outside with their placards, and no, 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 how dare you kill these animals? And they spray paint the tent. How dare you use animal skins? But this was the exact specifications of what the Lord did, of what he, or what he told them to do. And on the inside, you see there's a curtain separating the back, approximately third of the tent, and that was the Holy of Holies. And no one could go in there at any point except once a year when one high priest could go in there after he had gone through a whole bunch of different rituals to make sure that he was ceremonially clean to be able to go into the Lord's presence. Other than that, no one could enter his presence. No one could enter his tent. And we look at that and we're just like, man, that's weird. That's weird. Why would there be like a priest with all the like, special robes and a special hat that he has to wear? And very, spe- very specific in what the Lord told them they could do in order to come into his presence. Why would it be that way? But if you were the ancient Israelites, if you get in your uh, time machine, your DeLorean, or for kids who are a little younger, the way back, right? From uh, was it Mr. Peabody and Sherman movie a couple years ago. You get into your time machine, you travel back to that time, and ancient Israelites are like, well, yes, this is, of course, the way it's going to be. We can't dwell in God's holiness. We can't spend any time in there. Did you see what he did to the Egyptians as we were leaving, the, as they were pursuing us, the power he had to drown them in the Red Sea? Did you see what he did to Jericho when we marched around and he made the walls come down? Do you have any idea what it's like to be in God's presence? I mean, you will, you will die. He will swallow you up in the earth or you'll be consumed by fire. We can't go into God's presence just any way we want. And they're right. 
We can't. We ourselves have no right to enter his presence and to be near him and to approach his throne. None. We have no right to do this. And even in our day, like when we look at the types of leaders that we want, we don't want a leader who says that he is separate and apart and that there has to be something special to go see him. No, we want a leader who has a charming smile and takes selfies with us and acts like he's our buddy. These are the kind of leaders we want, but that's not who our God is. He's holy, set apart. He's the creator. We are the creation. God is not our co-pilot. He's not your homeboy. And he's not simply the man upstairs. No, God is holy and separate. And he's your Lord, which means he has the right to demand of anything he wants of you in any aspect of your life. That's what it means for him to be Lord. And he needs to be worshipped with reverence. So indeed, who can sojourn in the Lord's tent and dwell on his holy hill? As we go through the next verses, we'll see the answer. And it's not comforting. Listen to the characteristics of the one who can dwell with God as we go through this. And we read through them uh, as it's laid out in the psalm, as David laid it out verse by verse. But here I've, I've put the characteristics in different groupings. So into four groupings, his walk, his talk, his money, and his motives. Hebrew poetry likes to use parallelism and comparison and chiasms and all these different literary devices um, and in, instead of rather explaining what all of those are throughout, I thought it would be easier just to put these uh, in sections like this. So first, his walk. The one who can dwell in the Lord's tent walks blamelessly and does what is right. Walks blamelessly. How are you doing that? I know I'm not blameless. I can't even get out of bed blameless. I get out of bed and I start walking to the bathroom and my dog gets in the way and I trip over him and the first words out of my mouth are not, this is the day the Lord has made. <laughs> and he's a good dog. <laughs> no, it, we can't walk blamelessly and we don't, no matter how hard we try. Or if we think about the things that I do wrong, um, even in, a call, in my call as a husband, a father, I'm called to love my wife, my, wife, my wife like Christ loves the church. I'm called to sacrificially serve her even. And yet what do I do after I eat dinner? I finish up. I might carry them to the counter. And then I go off and do whatever. And something else comes up that's more important than cleaning up for myself properly. And then what do I do? I come back and I see her cleaning up my dishes saying, man, I wish people would just, why am I the only one who cares about how the kitchen looks and how clean this house is? And there's six of us in here and only one of us cared. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I should have. You know, it would have been easy for me, right, just to, I have this magic machine called a dishwasher where I just open it and I put the plate in and put the cutlery in and I'm good. But no, I take the, the easy way out. I don't love my wife as well as I should. And I'm sure a lot of you can relate. 
What about despising evil? So the one who can dwell with the Lord, his, in his walk, he needs to despise evil. What's it like at work for you when you hear your coworkers joking? And there's an off-color comment, maybe about somebody of a different skin color, or maybe of the opposite gender, or somebody's mocking uh, her husband at home. And yet you think it's pretty funny. Do we despise evil? Or maybe it's something that you find yourself habitually falling into, a certain, a certain sin that you just can't get out of the pattern of. And you think, why do I do this? And well, it's actually because you love it. You don't despise it. So as we walk through this, we're starting to see the weight of our sin on ourselves, right? We don't deserve to be in God's presence. What about honoring those who fear the Lord? How do you show honor to those who love God? For example, let's take your pastor or your elders or those who have discipled you. So you come here on a Sunday morning and you hear Pastor Matt preach and you go home and you go, man, that could have been better. Probably more like you'll say that about mine, not about his, but I know. Or, or the worship leaders are up here and you're like, man, I really didn't like that song. Why couldn't it have been like at this place? Or, oh, that church that I visited down at, when I was on vacation. Or, so rather than supporting and blessing those who are, the Lord has put over you, you tend to look at the flaws and the weaknesses and the ways that they can improve. How do you honor those who love the Lord? It's easy to complain, yet we're called to honor them. All of us fail in our walk. What about the next section, our talk? So the one who can dwell with the Lord does not slander or do any evil to his neighbor. Now, slander is something that's very easy to do these days, especially in social media, right? We get very courageous sitting behind a keyboard and typing, oh, this guy, I can't believe what he said, and I'm going to let him have it. Or on email, how dare you say that at church and tell me that I am not worthy of entering God's presence. It's very easy, right, to slander from behind a keyboard. We get very, we get very brave. Somebody actually in Abbotsford recently did this uh, to one of, our, one of our pastors at Abbotsford, at the Northview campus in Abbotsford. His name is Andy Steiger. He's a, uh, if you follow Apologetics Canada at all, at all, he is a part of that and he leads that. Uh, and he was going to speak at a school recently, and somebody went on Facebook and said all these mean things about him in this big Abbotsford-wide forum, and the next thing he was getting a call from the school saying, sorry, sir, you're uninvited from speaking at our school. She said all these things about him, that he was racist and sexist, and, and that he was homophobic, and all of these things that he was, he was as bad, he was just this awful person that totally weren't true, any of them. Slander. It's easy to do in our culture. What about taking up a reproach against his friend? Taking up a reproach, another word that we don't really use, this means to gossip. So you have a friend that you like to have coffee with and you meet with and you enjoy spending time and you hear somebody else say something negative and rather than questioning that person, you go, oh, really? 
is that so? And so you call your other friend, did you hear what so-and-so did? I can't believe that he would do that. I have a friend actually in high school who would say about gossip, he's like, ooh, I love gossip. It's like a warm blanket on a cold day. Because what, right? what does gossip do? It makes us feel better about ourselves while shoving somebody else down, right? That's a true story. The guy actually said that. And a guy, right? Often gossip gets pushed into the realm of women. That's so false. Yeah, everybody, everybody gossips. And in the church, there's a book called Respectable Sins by a guy named Jerry Bridges. And this is one of the ones that he says ends up being acceptable because we lay it out there as we gossip about somebody like, well, you know, I really need you to pray for Bill because Bill's cheating on his wife. (laughs) Right? These are the things that we do. And they just show that we aren't worthy of God's presence. The next one, swears to his own hurt and does not change. Essentially, this means that your words match your actions and that you're going to live up to what you say and that you are going to own up to the things that you do, no matter the consequences. A couple of examples. First, uh, my father-in-law last week was, a week and a half ago or so, was driving his motorcycle. He had gone through some illnesses and hadn't been able to ride for about two years. And decided, all right, finally, I'm feeling good enough. I've, he's been, he had been practicing. He also has a Vespa, and he had been kind of driving around with that. And was like, all right, I'm ready to take out the bigger bike now. So he gets on and goes for a ride. He's going up to uh, Harrison, heading up the Lowheat Highway, up through Harrison Mills area. A guy passes him a car and cuts him off, cuts up right in front of him. And he had to slam on his brakes and try to avoid him, and he wiped out. And he wasn't going slow, so thankfully he was wearing his proper protective gear, but he still didn't have a full face mask helmet, ended up skinning his face on the pavement, broke two ribs, punctured a lung, uh, and also broke his shoulder blade. In the hospital for over a week, he's finally home now, he's recovering well, but the guy who cut him off, what did he do? Just kept driving. Witnesses from both directions stopped, tried to help him, and said, how couldn't that guy have stopped? What was he thinking? Surely he saw what happened. He cut off the motorcyclist. What did he think was going to happen? But he didn't. Didn't want to own up to his actions. Contrast that with a woman I know who, a while ago, was driving on a dark, rainy night in winter, Driving, got distracted by something in her car, hit something, realized it was a person, and the lady died. So she got charged with um, something like undue care and attention, causing death, had to go to court, stood in front of the judge and said, Judge, I am guilty as charged. Had tears in her eyes, fully owning up to what she did, said, I took my eyes off the road, I shouldn't have been doing what I was doing. Whatever judgment you have for me is what I deserve. She's a mom with four kids, but was fully willing to take the judgment and take the punishment. So the question for us, which response is ours when we're challenged with something that could have 
negative consequences for us. And maybe it's something smaller, um, something at work where you are buttering up your boss, and you just, but in, behind that, you're actually um, talking behind their back and saying negative things, and you're talking about, oh, I can't stand her, actually. Are your words are matching up for your actions? Are you owning up to what you've said and done? What about our money? So this one who can dwell with the Lord needs to, or doesn't put out his money at interest and doesn't take bribes against the innocent. In other words, greed doesn't drive his decisions. He loves others and loves God more than he loves money. Jesus talks about this. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You cannot serve both God and money. But yet when we have money, man, it's really easy to just want to hold it and keep it and use it for our own pleasure. And go buy more toys and go on big vacations rather than using it to serve God and to serve others. What does it look like for you? Your use of your money. Jesus says the way we use our money shows where our hearts are. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The last category in this section are his motives. So the one who dwells with the Lord, who is going to dwell on his holy hill, has to have motives that match his actions. Verse 2, it says, he speaks the truth in his heart. Which shows that what's going on in his heart is what's driving his actions. So, we, we can have good actions, but what's going on in our heart behind that? Are your motives good behind what's happening with your actions? Or are your motives Wrong. Because we all can do things right externally. We can all look good and uh, godly on the outside in the way we talk and the way we act, but yet on the inside be totally rotten. Jesus talks about this with the Pharisees, right? He, ta- he says, you brood of vipers, you're whitewashed tombs. Inside, you're full of death, even though on the outside you look so good. But what about in our lives? How, are, how does this play out? Well, think of it like this. Uh, how, how good are my actions in this scenario? So imagine my wife is having her birthday. And I decide I'm going to buy her a dozen red roses because those are her favorites. So I go to the flower shop and I buy them and I have them wrapped up nice, a ribbon on there, a card, drive back home, knock on the door. Don't, I don't just go in. I make a nice presentation up front. She answers the door. Oh, honey, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have gotten me these. They're so beautiful. I love you. I love red roses. And she hugs me and I say, well, you know, I was kind of figured uh, if I got you these roses, maybe you'd stop complaining about the dishes I leave on the counter. Where are those roses going to end up? (laughs) They're going to end up on the ground and there's going to be a door in my face, right? See, our motives, the heart behind our actions needs to be there. It needs to be a heart that wants to serve, that that leads to serving, not actions thinking that we're going to actually earn something out of this. And you might be wondering, why do we keep doing these things? Why do we keep doing the things that God doesn't want us to do? 
Well, there's a phrase that says that we do what we do and we say what we say because we want what we want. We do what we do and we say what we say because we want what we want. What we want is our motives. I will do things based on what I want. So, therefore, if I have selfish motives, I could do a good thing for selfish motives or I could do a good thing out of a heart of love and service for God and for others. So what do you want? What are the motives behind your actions? When we look at all these characteristics that we've laid out here in the walk, the talk, the money, and the motives, when we look at all of these things, basically we can sum this up in what Jesus said are the two greatest commandments. He says this in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. And somebody asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But again, the problem for us is that we aren't doing that. I don't love the... God with all my heart, soul, and mind like I should? I don't love my neighbor as myself. My walk is sinful. My talk is sinful. I use my money for selfish purposes. I do things that are from impure motives. Jesus says to us that our righteousness righteousness needs to be greater than the Pharisees, those ones who have all of those great external works. And they know how to obey the law to the letter. We need to be more righteous than they are. How in the world? How in the world? What hope do we have to fill God's holy requirements? Because they need to be fulfilled for us to have access to God. So we get to the last point. David leaves us with a promise. In the last line of this psalm, the last line says, he who does these things shall never be moved. And in the Hebrew here, it emphasizes the singularity of he and the one who does these things that shall never be moved. This is talking about an one individual This isn't talking about the many people who do these things. No, there's one who will do these things. There is one who will do these things. There is one whose talk was blameless throughout his whole life. And he never slandered. And he never gossiped. There was was one whose walk was blameless his whole life. And he never had sinful actions. There's one who never used money for greedy purposes. There's one whose motives were always pure, always for loving God and loving others. And his name is Jesus. You knew that was coming. Yes, Jesus. And when Christ died on the cross as the final sacrifice for our sins, that thick curtain in the tabernacle, or at that time, in the temple which was as thick as the span of my hand, tore in two from top to bottom, 
absolutely impossible for any man to do it. No, God tore it in two when Christ died. Christ's sacrifice providing the way for anyone access to God's throne. Christ's sacrifice no longer needing to do the animal sacrifices, but Christ, Jesus Christ, being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And while we like to emphasize that sacrificial death and all that he did in that, sometimes we do it while we neglect his perfect life. You see, both are equally important. We need Christ's perfect obedience to the Father's law to not sin against others, to perfectly keep every one of the commands, every one of the Ten Commandments, and every one of the other 600 and whatever they were for the Jews to keep. Jesus kept them all perfectly. And both are necessary, his death and his active obedience. So God's, God's requirement to enter his presence hasn't changed. It's always been absolute perfect. Perfection, absolute perfect obedience to his law has always been the requirement. And the good news is that for us who have put our faith in Jesus, yes, his blood covers our sins, but he also takes our sins and gives us his righteousness, clothes us in perfect garments. You look in the, in the book of Revelation, it talks about all of those clothed in white robes. That is Christ's righteousness covering us, to making us clean and making it possible for, to dwell with God forever. It's through God's work, through Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his eventual return. All of this makes it possible for us to enter God's presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 to 31 says this, And because of him, being God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have nothing to boast in. In our lives, even our good works, the Apostle Paul writes, are filthy rags. Why? Because often our motives aren't pure. We have nothing to boast in. All we can boast in is Christ. He's the one that we can boast in. We haven't earned our salvation. Jesus earned it for us. And when the Holy Spirit opens your heart and mind to such truth, that is the most humbling thing. It causes you to fall on your knees. And cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, this isn't to say that works aren't important. We're saved by Christ's work and his Christ's works. We're saved by Christ's works, and we are saved by his works for us to do good works. So it's, this isn't to say that we give license to now, oh, I can live however I want and I can keep sinning and keep doing this and that. No, that's, that's, not the biblical, that's not the biblical teaching. You can read through Romans and you'll see the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul on this. No, we are called to be sanctified and the Spirit does that. And as we love God and love people and we serve him and we fellowship and we continue to read God's word and we continue to be discipled, we're sanctified. 
And the Spirit does his work in us. But we're not saved by our works. We're saved for good works. So where does this leave the kneeling drunkard? Well, I'll close with this parable from Christ. It says this, uh, Two men went up to the temple to pray. And one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus finishes by saying, I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God is looking for the humble heart. And by his grace, he sends the Spirit to humble us. Through passages like this, where we see how unworthy we are and how worthy Christ is. And when the humble heart puts his faith in Jesus, you cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. And he does. And we dwell with him on his holy hill forever. Let me pray. Father, I thank you.